Amen. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Genesis chapter 3. I started a series last uh, Wednesday night. We've entitled Stories in Genesis, just because I don't know what else to call it. And uh, we talked about creation a bit. And tonight I want to talk to you about the fall of man. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. For God does know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Now, the, the back story to this is in the first two chapters of Genesis where there's a, a, a creation that's perfect. God looks at it and says it's very good. God took a world that was in chaos, presumably by the work of the devil when he was cast out of heaven when he rebelled against God, and in six days made it a perfect environment. Now, folks, there are several things we want to talk about t- tonight specifically and, and uh, well, specifically about the fall. But I want to talk to you a little bit more uh, or to begin with, I want to talk to you a little bit about the big picture of this. And that is, the third chapter of Genesis is a real important book, uh, part of the book, because if you understand what the Bible is trying to communicate to us in Genesis chapter 3, you can destroy the underpinnings of the foundation of the devil's lies in anything and everything in your life. Now, for example, one of the things that the devil has done through the spirit of this world and, and operating through the governments of man is he's created a a perception and the devil deals in perception not truth he's created a perception that the creation story is a myth it's a theory but that instead evolution is a scientific scientifically proven fact or at least there's scientific evidence to to uh to lean in that direction and nothing could be further from the truth see the evolutionary theory is basically this Man started at the bottom of the scale as some kind of one-celled organism and evolved and evolved and evolved through hundreds of years, millions of years, whatever, until the point where we've gotten to where we are now. And if we'll continue to evolve, all we need is a good environment and education and opportunity, and man will get better and better and better. History doesn't prove that out, though. The creation story tells us that man started at the top. There was one and only one rule that man had to keep in a perfect environment, and he was found wanting. There was only one command that God gave man, only one. And in that condition, in that perfect environment that that the government says, don't worry, we'll create for you. We'll give you every opportunity. We'll even the playing field. We'll give everybody free education. We'll give everybody an equal opportunity uh, economically, which will ensure that man will do right And man will prosper. But the creation of man tells us that it worked just the opposite. Man started off on the top and fell to the bottom. Now there's something you need to to give some consideration to. 
And that is in everything that God created, in everything about this natural realm that God created, everything is improving except man. It's called growth. Everything grows. Every living thing grows and improves as a result of that growth. There are examples in the plant kingdom of cross-pollination and cross uh, hybrids that have been created through no work of man. It just happens on its own. It's almost like everything in creation is trying to get better except man. Because there is no beast of the field that will abandon or kill its young as easily as man will. There is no beast of the field that will eat foul or polluted or poisoned water. But thousands of human beings from every economic position, from every position of education, destroy their own lives every year through alcohol and and other substances. There is no beast of the field, no matter how evil, no matter how, well, I say evil, I mean menacing. There's no beast of the field that would knowingly eat mind-altering substances. But thousands of people do every year and destroy their lives to this. Man is not getting better. In fact, if you look at the history of civilizations, you'll find out that Whereas the evolutionary theory suggests that man is getting better and better, meaning smarter and smarter, there are things about ancient civilizations and things that they constructed and engineered and designed and so forth that we can't explain. As a matter of fact, we're still trying to, we meaning modern man, is still trying to figure out how the pyramids were built. And because it is so outside of the arrogance of modern man to consider that ancient man was smarter than us, They've come up with ideas that maybe they had help from outer space. You go back and look at some of the ancient wonders of the world. We don't even know what they were. You Google sometimes the hanging gardens of Babylon. You'll come up with every idea known under the sun that people have got for what they were. We can't even identify what they were. Much less duplicate what they did. Archaeological studies and, and discoveries have shown that the ancient Babylonians had a much, much, much more highly developed means and method of brain surgery than we've developed today. Yet modern man has the idea that just give us time, we'll get smart enough to to conquer everything, to figure everything out. And folks, the historical record just does not bear that out. Another thing about it is that it does not, the evolutionary theory does not explain the universality of sin. No matter what, neighborhood, rich or poor, mansions or ghettos, there is no family, no nation, no empire that's free from the ravages of sin. That's why you can't fix sin with government policies. Now, you can decrease crime. Crime and sin are not the same thing. But there is no household, there is no family, rich or poor, educated or ignorant, It's free from sin. And there's only one explanation for that, and that is we all come from the same source of sin. That was Adam's fall. Romans 5.12 says, Wherefore by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men. There's only one possible explanation that can make that true, that can fit the realities of our history in the historical record. And that is for the creation story and the story of the fall of man to be accurate. It's the only thing that fits. Only thing that fits. Back to Genesis chapter 3. 
verse 1. Now, the serpent was more subtle than any beast. The word serpent here is, is used for a hissing sound. It literally means a hissing sound. It does not mean snake. It means the sound that it makes. It comes from the root word enchanter. Other translations say, or one translation says, um, uses the word shining one. Now, the shining one was more subtle than any beast. Let me ask you a question. We don't know how long Adam and Eve have been in the garden. We don't know to what degree they have experience in knowing how things work or whatever. The way we usually read it is they were created on uh, Friday. God rested on Saturday and by Sunday evening they were gone. They had fallen. But that's not necessarily the case. They may have been there for, for years, decades, hundreds of years perhaps. We don't know how long it was there. But however long it was, there was something about the devil's appearance that caused Eve to listen. Now, if you were Eve, knowing that you had authority over the earth and over everything that lived in the earth, which would include snakes, would you listen to a snake? I know a lot of people are listening to snakes and they don't know it. But certainly the, thing, the, the point is, uh, that I'm trying to make is, if he appeared as a snake or a cow or a donkey or anything like that, why would Eve listen? She knows she's above him. There was something about the way Satan appeared to her that made her think, wow, this guy's worth listening to. Now, how did he appear? I don't know. He may have appeared as better looking than Adam. It doesn't make sense that he'd appear as an animal. But whatever it was, he appeared in such a way that she was taken by his appearance and listened to what he said. I don't know if the other animals spoke. But it would be out of character for a snake to speak. They don't speak now. But whatever it was, there was something about this guy's appearance that caused her to listen. And if you can understand how the devil works, and this is a perfect picture, and I believe it's the reason that we have the record. It shows you exactly how the devil operates, and he operates exactly the same way in every area of life. If you can learn to understand his temptation, you can learn to overcome it every time. Now the serpent said to the woman, Yea, has God said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? First thing the devil does is he questions what God says. That's his first temptation. Questions what God says. And the woman answered, said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. I want you to notice something. She does not quote what God said. She softens it up a little bit. She adds something to it. God said, you may eat of the fruit of the tree of every, uh, every tree, the fruit of every tree of the garden, except the one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you eat thereof, thou shalt surely die. Thou shalt surely die. It's a solemn warning. Thou shalt surely die. She says, well, we can eat of every tree except this one, but we're not supposed to touch it. Now, that's a good, good idea, but that's not what God said. But we can't touch this lest we die. Now, I want you to notice the devil knew what God had said. Because he answers to the woman, verse 4, you shall not surely die. The devil quotes God. She doesn't. 
Now, the second thing he does, first he questions what God says. The second thing is he tries to refute what God says. You shall not surely die. For God does know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as God's knowing good and evil. Now, here's something the devil always tries to do. He tries to question or bring into question, call into question, the goodness of God. Now, think about what the devil's doing. The devil is saying, in effect, these are my words, but see if, for yourself if they don't fit the situation. The devil is saying, now forget all this place where God made, this perfect environment you're in. Forget the fact that God made you out of Adam's rib and gave you and he dominion over the whole earth. Forget all that. Forget the fact that there's nothing on the earth that can hurt or harm you and that you have authority over everything that God made. Forget all that. What you need to understand is God's holding out on you. That's the important point here. God's holding out on you. Why in the world does Eve not say, who are you and what have you done? What part of this did you have anything to do with? You didn't make anything. Why is she not questioning him? Now, folks, here's something you need to understand. One of the greatest advances you're going to make spiritually is when you learn to question the devil. He's always questioning God. Why aren't you questioning him? It would have solved her problem. What's he going to say? Well, see that star up there? I made that. Even if she accepts it true, she's going to say that one out of the millions that are there, that's it? That's your claim to fame? She knows who created the world. She knows who made the perfect environment that she's living in. She knows who created her from nothing. She knows who put her in a position of authority. Why doesn't she stop? At the very least, why doesn't she stop and say, well, you know, God comes down about three in the afternoons. Let me talk to him about this. Let me ask him about this. You say this tree is something that will make me wise like him and he's trying to hold out on me. Let me ask him about it. That would have solved her problem. Devil wouldn't have hung around until three o'clock. But notice what she does. The implication is very simply this, folks. The devil wants to make you think the same thing that he made her think, and that is he's a better friend to you than God is. Can't trust what God says, but he won't lead you astray. He means the devil won't lead you astray. He's got the real scoop. He knows how things really work. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, well, of course, God made it. And that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise. Now, let me ask you a question. What's the difference between seeing that the tree is good for food and, it, and, seeing, and noticing, recognizing that it was pleasant to the eyes? What's the difference in that? It's talking about a temptation on all three levels. She saw that it was good for food, meaning it appealed to her flesh. It was pleasant to the eyes, meaning it appealed to her emotions. And then thirdly, she saw that it was something to be desired to make one wise. That's a spiritual temptation. But the temptation is not to be wise. The temptation is to be is spiritual pride. Remember what the devil has, has tempted her. He said, God knows if you eat, eat, eat this fruit of the tree, you'll be like him. 
you'll be equal with him. Isn't that what the devil fell into? Wasn't that the devil's sin? I will exalt my throne above the heavens. I will be like the most high God. He's always going to tempt you folks to try to be something more than what God says you've already been made in Christ. That's where spiritual pride comes. And he's always got to take you away from the word to do that. So what does she do? Well, she's been tempted in every, on every level. And notice this is what the devil does. He tries to come in between man's spirit and God by attacking the word. He doesn't tell her how unworthy she is. He attacks the word. Because he's got to separate man's spirit from God if he's going to have any influence in his life. It's the only way it can happen. When she saw these things, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were open and they knew that they were naked. Now here's something that comes into being immediately after the fall that had never been in operation before. I don't think it was created at this moment, but it's certainly not been in operation and that's the conscience. And the reason for that is they were created in innocence. And without a knowledge of sin, there is no conscience. But as soon as they fall, their conscience is operating or operational. And they knew that they were naked. They knew that they were naked. Now, here's another proof that God exists and the things are the way that the Bible says they are. There is no way in the world that conscience would be an evolutionary product. There's no way in the world that apart from God, man would develop a judge and a tormentor on the inside of him. Conscience we know of is the voice of your spirit telling man that he's responsible to a creator and responsible to divine law. How would that develop through evolution? Your conscience is either excusing you or accusing you based on divine law. How would that develop without the creator? It's the remnant. It's the remains of the fact that we were created in the image of God and our spirits were once united with him. Now, the Bible says you can sear your conscience, even Christians. It says you can ignore the things of God and ignore the voice of God to such a degree that you don't realize that that voice is speaking to you anymore. That voice doesn't go away, but you can become desensitized to it. But the question still stands, how could a conscience develop through evolution? How could anything that points you to a creator, to one that you have responsibility toward, and to divine law that you're, responsibility, that you're responsible to, how could that develop without a creating hand? It's impossible. Couldn't happen. So what do they do? Here's the eternal problem for man. What do they do? Their eyes of the both of them were opened. They saw that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. It's interesting that the Bible specifies that there are fig leaves that were used. Certainly what they're trying to do is use the work of their hands, their own works, to cover their shame, to cover their lack, to cover that which sin has created in them. Now, I believe it was a lot more than just they looked at themselves and realized, hey, we don't have any clothes on. I believe the light went out. I believe they were clothed with the glory of God. 
And just like a light bulb, when it's shining, you can't see what's on the inside. Do you remember the light bulbs that used to have filaments in them? I don't know what they got in them anymore, those curlicue things. I hate those things. But it used to be with a light bulb that has the filament, you couldn't see the filament. There were real thin wires in there, and you couldn't see it when the light was shining. But if you turn the light off, you can see it clearly. I believe that's what happened to man. The light went out. The light of the glory of God went out, and they recognized that they were naked. So what do they do? They do something with their own hands, expend labor, time, and effort to cover their nakedness, and they use fig leaves. Now, do you remember in Mark chapter 11 when Jesus cursed the fig tree? What did the fig tree represent? It represented the self-righteousness of Israel. When God cursed the fig tree, and it's the only thing Jesus cursed while he was here on the earth. Jesus cursed the fig tree, which represents self-righteousness. It represents the self-righteousness of Israel, Israel's own works, trying to keep the law that became a stumbling block and the point of rejection from accepting Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus said, no man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. He cursed the very thing that these fig leaves represented, which was the works of their own hand. Instead of running to God saying, hey, God, we really messed up. Help us out. They tried to cover themselves. The problem is it doesn't work because they still hid from God. See, if it would worked, would have worked, they would have just walked out and said, well, we may look a little different, but we're okay. But they still hid from God. Man's been hiding from God ever since. Paul said in Romans, he said, there is none that seeketh God, no, not one. But what does God do? God seeks them. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, where art thou? Remember when your kids were young and they've learned to walk and you come home, you haven't been home all day. You come home and they come running to you. Daddy, daddy, daddy. Remember that? I've got a little grandson now that does that with my son. And it makes me miss those days. The day when your children stop running to the door to greet you is a sad day indeed. Well, that's what happened with God. He comes down and everybody's hiding. So he calls for them. Not as the policeman, the universal policeman. But it's a call of love. You can hear the divine sorrow of God. He says, Adam, where are you? Where are you? Yesterday you ran to see me. Where are you today? Folks, that's the question God always asks you. Where are you? The only time he doesn't ask that, doesn't have to ask that, is when we're in close fellowship. That's why it's so good to stay there. Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. In other words, my works weren't good enough. I did the best I could making these aprons, but it didn't work. Still afraid, still hiding. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? Now, folks, I want you to realize something. Here's the one thing that God does, and he always does. He gives you an opportunity straight up to confess and repent from your sins. 
Have you eaten of the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Perfect opportunity for Adam to say, yes, Father, I did. I had no idea I made such a mistake or was making such a mistake. What does he do? He blames it on somebody else. He answers, the man answers, the woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. So see, God, this is your fault. You gave me a woman that led me astray. And the Lord God said unto the woman, what is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, the serpent beguiled me and I did eat. It's not anybody's fault, folks. You need to realize that. Sin is never somebody's fault for as long as you're trying to cover it up. There's a story in Luke chapter 14 where Jesus is telling the parable of people that are called to the marriage supper. And he mentions three people. And he says, go into the, the highways and byways and get these people, invite them, tell them to come to the marriage feast. This is a wonderful day, great celebration. Three times it speaks of people that were invited. One guy said, well, I just bought a piece of land and I've got to go see to it. Second guy said, I just bought a yoke of box and I've got to prove them. Got to work them out. Third guy said, I just got married. And each one made an excuse for what they did or for what they were unwilling to do in that case. Now, what was the excuse that they made? Well, the one guy says, I've got a piece of land. I've got to see to that. How is that more important than going to the feast? Because of the money he's going to make off the land? What about the other guy with the yoke of oxen? Why is plowing the field with him going to be more important than the celebration? Because of the money he's going to make off the field that's plowed? What about the guy that was married? Why is that more important? Because of the pleasure, the personal pleasure he's going to receive from his marriage? Folks, those are always the same excuses that people make when it comes to fellowshipping with God now. Now, the fig leaves have changed. People try a lot of different things to cover themselves. Maybe good works, maybe charitable donations. Could be any number of things, but it's still the same stuff. Trying to be good, still sewing your own apron. And the excuses haven't changed either. Well, I would go to church, but you know they have it on Sunday. That's the only day off I get all week long. Only day I can go to the river. Well, by all means, forget fellowship with God. You need to go to the river. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and thus shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. I want you to notice that there's a uh, a prophetic um, undertone here that's only culminated when Jesus comes back to the earth. I'll put enmity between thee and the woman and between your seed, Satan's seed, and her seed. Well, we know who her seed is. Her seed is Jesus. But who is his seed? Who's Satan's seed? It's the Antichrist. So in the beginning, at the fall of man, God says in one phrase, one sentence, here's how this is all going to wind up. Your offspring is going to fight against her offspring. We know how that turns out. It's the final conflict where the devil is cast into the bottomless pit. 
Your seed will between enmity between your seed and her seed. It shall bruise your head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. One translation says, I think it's, I think it's correct. It says, and your desire will be to rule over him. The reason Adam fell in the first place is because she talked him into it, or she went first, and he followed her in. I, the Bible says she was deceived and he wasn't. So he has the greater responsibility. I don't want anybody to misunderstand what I'm saying here. John Osteen used to joke, saying, where would we be if, if uh, without the women? He said, we'd be in the Garden of Eden. Well, that's a good joke, but that's not true. He did it willingly. Why would he do it willingly? That means he did it with his eyes wide open. She was deceived, but he wasn't. Why did he do it with his eyes wide open? He had to have followed her. He had to have chosen her over obeying God. So it says in your desire, talking to the woman, your desire shall be to rule over your husband, but he shall rule over thee. In other words, it's talking about the, the conflict between man and woman, husband and wife, as far as the ruling in the home is concerned. And I hate to give you account of the number of divorces that have occurred over that issue. And to Adam he said, because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife. Now I want you to realize that judgment comes to Adam exactly in line with what Adam said was the cause of his fall. God asked him, gave him a chance to repent, gave him a chance to confess his sin. Have you eaten of the tree that I told you not to? He said, the woman you gave me caused me to eat. So he judges him because he listened to her. Because thou hast hearkened unto your wife. Under the voice of thy wife, which is eaten of the tree. Of course, you know what the moral of that story is, don't you, husbands? Never listen to your wives. No, that's not true. Would have worked in this case, though. Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and have eaten of the tree which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns and thistles also shall it bring forth to thee, and it shall... Thou shalt eat of the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground. For out of it was that thou was, for out of it wast thou taken. For dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. Now it's interesting because of the things that he mentions. Notice he says, the, curse, the ground is cursed for your sake. The Bible talks about Jesus fulfilling each one of these things as a part of his sacrifice. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. The Bible talks about Jesus being a man of sorrows in Isaiah 53. Thorns and thistles also shall it bring forth to thee. Jesus was crowned with a crown of thorns in his crucifixion. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground. Jesus sweat great drops of blood in the garden of Gethsemane. For out of it was until thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken. For dust thou art, and to dust thou shalt return. In Proverbs, in um, Psalm 22, the prophetic uh, psalm about Jesus' death and so forth, it says, sp speaking of Jesus, it says, For thou hast brought me to the dust of the earth. There are about six different points here where it speaks of the curse that came upon man at the time of the fall 
And there's a scripture that covers every aspect of that fulfilled by Jesus. He goes further and says, And Adam called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. Unto Adam also unto his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothed them. Now this verse of scripture is, is without description, but it's instructive because when God made coats of skin for them, he showed them this is the pattern for sacrifice. It's the first gospel sermon ever preached, and we don't know what the words were. He showed them. He set an example for them that shedding of blood is the only thing that can cover their sin. It's the only thing. Now, that's going to be important in just a minute. I'll show you. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Now chapter 4 is really connected very closely, intended to be connected closely with chapter 3 and it tells us about Cain and Abel. There's just a few verses here that I want to talk to you about regarding Cain and Abel, but they're important. So let's just move into chapter 4. Verse 1, And Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. These are the first two children that we have record of that were born under the curse. Now, the Bible says in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, it says, Wherefore, by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men. It's telling us about the fall and the fact that all of mankind was affected by the fall, even though we weren't responsible for sinning individual in the Garden of Eden. But if we'd been there, we would have sinned too. Can't put it off on Adam and Eve. So these are the first two children, not necessarily the first two children they had, but the first two children that we have record of that were born under the curse. And it's instructive for us because of their behavior and the effect of the curse upon their lives. It's possible, likely, in my thinking, that there were generations of people in the Garden of Eden that were born into the Garden of Eden. At the point where Cain is cast out, he goes to another city. There has to be somebody that built a city. The old story is, where'd Cain get his wife? Well, if if Cain and Abel are the only two people on the earth besides Adam and Eve, there's no wife to be had. But if if there are people on the earth that built a city that he went to, the land of Nod, the city of Nod. And if he did find a wife, what the Bible says that he did, she had to come from somewhere. Where'd she come from? Adam and Eve were the first two, the original two. So it's likely in my thinking that there were generations of people that had been born into the, into the earth before the fall. Now, that wouldn't change anything. They'd still be affected by Adam and Eve's sin because they represented all of mankind. It was just a thought. Doesn't matter one way or the other. It was just a thought. So it says, And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of the flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and unto his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, that means angry, and his countenance fell. Now remember I told you that uh, uh, the first gospel sermon was preached in... uh, Chapter 3 and verse 21. 
Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 4 that by faith Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. It doesn't say Abel was a more excellent person. It says by faith he offered a more excellent sacrifice. Now what does that mean? That means very simply that by faith, and faith comes by hearing, so they had to have known. They had to have known about the sacrifice. They had to have known the requirements of the sacrifice. Where did they find out? They had to have heard from their mother and the father, Adam and Eve. How did Adam and Eve know? Because God showed them in verse 21 when he made them coats of skin. He showed them the necessity of shedding blood and offering the sacrifice. The skin was just a byproduct. The clothing that he made from the animal fur or the animal skin was just a byproduct of the sacrifice that was made. Now, there's something interesting here that, uh, that you can judge for yourself. And that is, notice in the first couple of verses of chapter 4, it says and in verse 3, And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. I want you to realize something. It implies several things. Number one, it implies that there was a specific time that God required man to worship him. It also implies that there was a specific place for this to take place. We know that there was a specific instruction giving on, given to them on how the worship was to be made, and that was to be made through sacrifice. Well, how do we explain this stuff? Go back to chapter 3 and verse 24. There are alternate translations for verse 24. Let me read it to you from the King James, and I'll tell you what other translations say. So he drove out the man, talking about God. So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims, and a flaming sword, which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Another translation says this. And God dwelt at the east of the Garden of Eden between the cherubims as a seraphim, which means flaming sword, to keep open the way of the tree of life. In other words, there's an implication by the language itself that when God drove Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden... It became a place where man could no longer inhabit because he was no longer holy and, and without blemish or without sin before the sight of God. But it implies that God set up an altar, maybe a mercy seat. And the flaming sword is not an angel standing there ready to kill them if they try to get back in. It's to show them that the tree of life is still the goal. The tree of life, which represents Jesus, is still the only way back to God. And that's what Cain wouldn't accept. He accepted the time. He accepted the place. But not the manner. What does Cain do? Cain brings the fruit of the ground, the fruit of his own hands. He's a farmer. And I'm sure he brought the best of everything that he had grown. I'm sure it was a beautiful offering. I'm sure it was everything that was as good as he could make it to be. But there's a problem. One major problem is it's a bloodless sacrifice. There's a secondary problem, really is part of the same thing, two sides of the same coin. But the ground is cursed. So Cain is bringing God an offering that originates from the curse. But it's from his hands. And so he devises this idea, and folks, man has been doing it ever since, that there are many ways to God it doesn't have to be one way. It doesn't have to be what the, the church tells you that, that the Bible says about it. There's any number of ways to God. So Cain says, I'm going to come in my own way. Now, where does he get the idea? There's not a fruit of the ground sacrificing church. 
for him to come out of. Where does he get the idea? The idea is developed through the temptation of spiritual pride, his own thinking that my way is as good as what my daddy said God wants it to be. So he brings an offering of the ground. His offering is not accepted. Abel does something that is accepted. What does he do? Does he do something by the fruit of his own or the labor of his own hands, the work of his own hands? Not at all. He kills an animal and offers blood. Now, in verse 21 of chapter 3, where it talked about God made coats of skin for Adam and Eve, this was of no, no doing of their own whatsoever. God brought forth the animal, God killed the animal, God made the skins. That which we are to be clothed with is to be completely separate and void of our own work. And this is what Cain could not accept. Now, folks, you need to understand something, and that is this. There is one thing that natural man in his pride hates more than the devil, and that's the law of God. Abel knew clearly. There's no reason for us to think that the younger brother Abel would know better than the older brother Cain what was required of the sacrifice. They both certainly knew where it was to be made and when it was to be made. But Cain refused to accept it God's way. So Cain brings his offering and it's not accepted. Abel brings his offering and it is accepted. We should probably assume that the acceptance of the sacrifice was the same then as it was later on in the Old Testament. And that is where God caused fire to fall from heaven and showed the acceptance of the sacrifice. But unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect, and Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth, and why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, talking about the sacrifice, if thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted. If you bring the sacrifice that I've commanded, will I not accept it for you just as much as I did for your younger brother? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. Now, the Hebrew of this says, sin is crouching at the door like an animal ready to devour you. Now, let me ask you a question. And, uh, well, I'm going to read to you from Romans chapter 5. A couple of verses of Scripture. I've already quoted one in verse 12, but I'm going to read another surrounding few verses. Let me get it. Romans chapter 5, verse 12, it says, Wherefore, as by one man, talking about Adam, wherefore, as by one man, sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Literally, the word have is not in there. Literally, it says, death passed upon all men, for all sinned. In other words, you sinned when Adam sinned. He represented all of mankind, so when he sinned, you sinned too. Verse 13, For until the law... Sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. And when did the law come? The law came to Moses. So it says death reigned from Adam to Moses, but sin was not imputed until Moses. So what kind of offering are they making? It's not a sin offering. What kind of offering are Cain and Abel making? There's no law, so there's no sin imputed. So what are they making an offering for? Keep that in mind. We'll tell you. 
For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Verse 13, verse 14 again. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. In other words, it's saying Adam was a symbol of of, of a type of Jesus, the symbol of him to come. Now back to Genesis chapter 4, verse 7 again. If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire. Talking about sin. Now some people interpret this as being talking about the relationship between Cain and Abel. And unto thee shall be his desire. The same phrase is used here as it's used over in Genesis chapter 3 when God's speaking of the curse upon the woman. Her desire will be to rule over the husband, but the husband will rule over her. That's the same phraseology that's used here in this verse of Scripture. If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted. And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his, sin's desire, not Abel's desire. See, some people say that Cain was afraid that he was going to lose his right as the firstborn. But that's not what it's talking about. He may have had that fear, unjustified though it might have been. But that's not what this verse is talking about. It's saying, sin's lying, crouching at the door, waiting to devour you like an animal. And unto thee shall be his, sin's desire, and thou shalt rule over him. Now, what's going to enable Cain and Abel to rule over sin without the law? The sacrifice that covers them, that makes a covering for them. Now, the only thing that the Bible says in Romans chapter 5, and, and this is true where, uh, where Job is concerned. A lot of people have a, uh, a misunderstanding, in my opinion, of the book of Job because they come up with the idea that Job is offering sin offerings for his sons after the feasts and, and festivals and stuff like that. Job says, I'm going to offer an offering for them because it may be that my sons have sinned. Well, how would he not know? If there's a law in place, How would he not know? All he's got to do is go to the feast and see what they're doing. It's hard to imagine that he didn't know what they were doing. And so if he knew what they were doing, how would he not know whether or not they'd sinned? There's only one answer, folks, and that is that there was no law. The book of Job had to be before Moses, probably before Abraham. There was no law of God in place. So what is he doing? He's offering a sin. uh, He's offering... Uh, he's making an offering. It's a burnt offering, but it's not a sin offering. There's no sin offering to be made. That's why when the law of Moses was given, God goes into great, great, great detail about what the sin offering is and how it's to be made. Why would he have to tell that if he's already instituted it earlier with Israel? Why would that not have been passed down? Because there was none. There's no such thing. Sin was not imputed until Moses, until the law comes. So Cain... And Abel are offering, making an offering, a sacrificial offering, a burnt offering most probably. But for what purpose? Well, we're going to find out when Cain's curse comes. And Cain talked with Abel, his brother. And it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. And the Lord said unto Cain, where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Now, what was Abel? Abel was the keeper of the sheep. So Cain puts Abel in Abel's life in the same category as the sheep that Abel looked after and offered the best as a sacrifice to God. 
Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, God said unto him, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. Here's the first time that the word blood is used in the scripture. Chapter 4. The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. The voice of thy brother's blood. Now, folks, what I want you to realize is the principle is very simply this. Blood speaks. The blood of the Old Testament sacrifices spoke. It spoke of their either atonement later on in the Old Testament. In this case, it spoke of their freedom from the curse. In our case, the blood of Jesus speaks of our righteousness. Blood speaks. So he said, what hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. And now thou art cursed from the earth, which has opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. So what was the sacrifice for? To release them from the curse of the ground. The shedding of blood for Cain and Abel was a release from the curse that was upon the ground. So that the earth would yield forth her fruit. Why? Because the blood covered the curse for those that were making the sacrifice. So what does Cain do? Cain said unto the Lord, verse 13, my punishment is greater than I can bear. I want you to notice something. He's not sorry that he killed his brother. There's no mention of his sin. Certainly no mention of the righteous judgment of God. Well, that's only right. I did kill my brother. I wish I hadn't now. He simply says, my punishment is greater than I can bear. I wonder if that's going to be the cry from the lake of fire throughout eternity. My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth, and from thy face shall I be hid, and I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth, and it shall come to pass that everyone that findeth me shall slay me. And the Lord said unto him, Therefore, whosoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark upon Cain, lest any finding him should kill him. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. Now the name Nod means wandering. And it literally means this. The curse that came upon Cain for shedding and spilling his, brother, his brother's innocent blood. And there's a lot of similarities, a lot of types that are fulfilled about Cain, I mean, uh, excuse me, Abel and Jesus. Both as an offering and, and the one making the sacrifice. But wherever Cain went from that point forward, the earth would not yield forth its fruit to him. He spent the rest of his days wandering. And no matter where he went, no matter what good ground he found, the earth did not yield to him its strength. That has to be what they were making sacrifices to overcome. That has to be what the sacrifice was being made for. Wherefore, as by one man, Sin entered the world, and death by sin. So death passed upon all men. So death passed upon all men. Now I want you to th- consider for just a moment, and I'll take, I'll take this real quickly. I want you to consider the, the contrast between how, the, uh, how Eve dealt with, the Satan's, dealt with Satan's temptations in contrast with how Jesus did. Satan comes to Eve and says, Has God said... You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. 
He questions her. What does she do? She puts her own interpretation on what it is and then listens to him tell her what God really didn't say. The devil comes to Jesus and tempts him, first of all, with hunger. He said, if you're the son of God, command these stones to be turned into bread. Prove yourself, Jesus. Satisfy the desire of your flesh to eat and prove yourself by the use of your power for your own well-being. Jesus answered, it is written. It is written. Now, there was nothing for Eve to say it was written about, but she sure could say, God has said, thou shalt surely die. She could have been stronger about what he said. Jesus was then tempted by the devil, taken up into a high mountain, shown the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. The devil said, all these things I'll give to you if you'll bow down and worship me. Jesus answered and said, it is written. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou serve. Then the devil took him to the pinnacle of the temple. said, cast yourself down. Let everybody see you. For the word says, it's written. The angels shall bear you up in their wings, lest you dash your foot upon a stone. Again, prove yourself. Jesus answered, the third time, it is also written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Now, folks, let me ask you a question. If Jesus, in dealing with the devil, anointed with the Spirit of God without measure, in other words, nothing was impossible for him. If Jesus, with that kind of power here on the earth, who was sent to show the world the character and the nature of God to begin with, if he took that kind of position with the written word of God, what place should the word have for us? And what do we see as the example of the only thing that's effective to overcome the devil's temptation? Quoting the word, it is written. Finally, after the third time, the devil left him. Now, folks, people make all kinds of excuses. Say, well, this is what the Bible says, but. I know it says this, but maybe this or that or whatever. Jesus stuck with what was written. Jesus lived by what was written. If the word made flesh, the son of God on the earth took that position, how much more should we? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it's true. Thank you, Father, for the exceeding greatness of your creation. Though man is in a fallen state, subject to sin and death, Father, the blood of Jesus cries out. It speaks to our righteousness. It speaks to our salvation. It speaks to our healing and our well-being and our provision. The blood of Jesus still speaks. Thank you, Father, for the authority that we have in that name because of the precious blood of Jesus who made an eternal sacrifice for us once and for all. Thank you, Father, that we're not subject to the curse upon the earth, for Christ has been made a curse for us. Thank you, Father, that everything we put our hand to prospers and that the earth yields for us even as it was intended to do in the beginning because of the blood of Jesus. Not our own works, Father, but we trust in and rely upon the shed blood of Jesus. Thank you, Father, that you've clothed us and not according to our own hands. 
that you've clothed us, clothed us with your righteousness. We thank you, Father, that you've elevated us even closer to you than they were in the Garden of Eden. Now we don't have to wait for a certain time of day to speak to you, but you're always with us. You never leave us nor forsake us. They were rulers of the earth, but we're joint heirs with Jesus of all things. Jesus said, all things that the Father hath are mine. And he said he'd show them to us. Thank you, Father, for who you've made us in Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Say it with me. The Lord is good. And his mercy endures forever. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.